Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, September 22nd. I'm Leslie Palma. And I'm Teresa Watson. We're so happy to have you with us tonight. In our top story, we'll tell you about an effort in Congress to repeal a federal law that is being used to punish pro-lifers. And we'll report on three more pro-lifers who have been convicted of violating the FACE Act. Teresa and I will talk to Dr. Ingrid Skopp, a pro-life OBGYN who is working to battle the medical information being spread by the abortion cartel and the media regarding women's health in states where babies are protected from abortion. In political news in a nutshell, I'll report on what former President Donald Trump said about abortion laws in the interview on Meet the Press. I'll also tell you the advice Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is giving Floridians about a proposed amendment in the state constitution. In Abortion in the News, I'll report on how abortion sellers and advocates treat their employees and why Planned Parenthood has cranked up its killing machine in Wisconsin again. In our closing segment, we'll talk to Sean Carney, president of 40 Days for Life, about the upcoming fall campaign. Stay tuned. With eight pro-life activists facing up to 11 years in prison, following their convictions on charges of violating the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances, or FACE Act, Pro-life lawmakers in Congress have introduced legislation to repeal the 1994 law. On Tuesday, Texas Congressman Chip Roy submitted the FACE Act Repeal Act of 2023 in the House, and Utah Senator Mike Lee was to follow suit in the Senate. The FACE Act was signed into law by President Bill Clinton during the height of the rescue movement when pro-life activists would block the doors of abortion mills to prevent women from aborting their babies. Most rescuers were willing to be arrested and serve time in jail for their efforts to save the unborn. But the FACE Act's long prison sentences pretty much spelled the end of the rescue movement. If the repeal is successful, which is a long shot given the slight advantage the Democrats have in the Senate, it would not impact those already convicted of violations, including eight people recently found guilty in U.S. District Court for D.C., stemming from a protest in October 2020 at the office of late-term abortionist Cesare Santangelo. Two of the activists convicted in recent weeks are women in their 70s. Jean Marshall is 73. 74-year-old Joan Andrews Bell has served long prison sentences in the past, including a stretch in solitary confinement for her pro-life activism. The Department of Justice has brought face charges against other activists in Tennessee, Florida, and Michigan. A repeal of the act could impact those trials. Congressman Roy was angered last year when two dozen heavily armed federal agents showed up at the rural Pennsylvania home of pro-lifer Mark Houck, hauling him away in front of his wife and terrified children. Houck was charged with face violations stemming from an incident outside of Planned Parenthood in Philadelphia, where a pro-abortion escort was harassing Houck's 11-year-old son. Houck was acquitted of all charges at a trial earlier this year. In a press release announcing his legislation to repeal face, Roy said, Free Americans should never live in fear of their government targeting them because of their beliefs. Yet Biden's Department of Justice has brazenly weaponized the FACE Act against normal, everyday Americans across the political spectrum simply because they are pro-life. In his press release, Senator Lee said Joe Biden's Department of Justice has weaponized this constitutionally dubious law against pro-life sidewalk counselors while failing to protect pregnancy centers and churches from arson, vandalism, and violence. It's time to repeal the FACE Act once and for all. 
As soon as states began enacting laws to protect babies from abortion, the abortion lobby began warning that women would die if they were not able to terminate pregnancies for serious medical conditions. It's been 15 months since Roe v. Wade was overturned, and thank God, no women have died. But that doesn't stop the flow of misinformation. The truth is that every state with a protective law for the unborn allows exceptions for women with serious medical complications. But that truth is being overlooked or purposefully ignored by the abortion lobby and its media friends. We've invited Dr. Ingrid Skopp to join us tonight to counter some of this misinformation. She is a practicing OBGYN and Vice President and Director of Medical Affairs for the Charlotte Lozier Institute, a research organization dedicated to presenting the truth about abortion. Welcome to the show, Dr. Scott. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be with you both. So Dr. Scott, you recently co-authored a paper for Charlotte Lozier that took a look at the laws in every state where abortion is restricted or banned. What did you find? We found that every state allows an exception if an abortion is needed um, in order to protect the life of the mother or to prevent a serious illness um, or serious injury to her from a complication of pregnancy. The laws are usually um, phrased in such a way that it allows a doctor to use his reasonable medical judgment. That is, we all understand that means we can practice according to the standard of care to determine when to intervene in a medical emergency. The laws are quite clear, but unfortunately, I think few physicians have read the laws, and that is part of the reason for the confusion. So Dr. Scott, are you saying then that doctors are, really, are somewhat unsure about what they can and cannot do in terms of abortion, or is that really just more information, misinformation? Unfortunately, it is the case that doctors are confused. And I think we can, we can see that the um, rationale behind what the abortion industry is doing. They, you know, 95 plus percent of all abortions in our country are on healthy mothers in healthy babies. And of course, it is so difficult to justify ending a human life for social and financial reasons. Impossible, I would say. So their plan is to frighten pregnant women, frighten doctors, and to turn the American public against these laws that are saving babies um, in order to cause the laws to fail. Um, the What normally happens whenever there's legislation affecting the practice of medicine of course, most doctors are not attorneys. We don't feel comfortable um, interpreting the law on our own, but our professional societies and our hospitals have always given us guidance. Um, in this case, that has not happened. There has been eerie silence from almost all of these organizations. Um, and I believe that the reason is ideological. Many of these organizations are pro-abortion. They would like to see the laws fail and they're willing to allow the the confusion to continue, even though unfortunately sometimes women are being injured because doctors are afraid to intervene in situations where they should be intervening. Well, we reported last week on lawsuits filed in Idaho, Oklahoma, and Tennessee concerning women whose babies were diagnosed with serious illnesses in utero, but who could not have abortions because those states don't have exceptions for fetal anomalies. And all of the suits also said the mothers might develop serious medical complications themselves. So it seems like they're attacking laws from two angles. What do you think their end goal is? Just more exceptions, more fear? What, what, what are they yeah. up to? Clearly the end goal is to use the judicial system to modify these laws. These laws, of course, 25 states have passed protections, strong protections um, against elective abortion, protecting these unborn lives. And because that's the will of the people, 
Um, and yet, as we saw at the time of Roe v. Wade, we're seeing again, they're attempting to use the judicial system to circumvent our will. Many um, judges do receive significant contributions from Planned Parenthood and other abortion um, advocacy organizations. And so I think that the states that have been chosen have been carefully chosen. They think that they can modify the laws, loosen the laws, um, in some cases overturn the laws um, through this judicial activism. The, the other corollary, um, again, we talked about the Every state allows an exception for um, an abortion if it's needed to protect a mother's life. As an obstetrician of 30 years, I would say that's rarely needed. Um, if a pregnancy poses a serious risk to a mother's life, it usually does it after the baby can survive separated from his mother. And my job is simple. I separate him from the mother, usually by induction, sometimes by C-section. And many, many times that baby can survive. I have never had to intentionally perform a dismemberment abortion in order to protect a mother's life. Well, well, abortion is often seen, certainly by the abortion industry and the media, as the best choice for a seriously ill baby. Is there a better choice for a family facing a life-limiting illness for their child in the womb? Yeah, I think it is tragic that the abortion industry is using these heartbreaking situations and these women who have suffered such grievous losses to advance their agenda of ending healthy babies and healthy mothers. Um, yes, of course, there's always a better way to handle this situation of a life-limiting fetal diagnosis. We should recognize, of course, that sometimes we can be wrong in our diagnosis. But of course, there are some children who have some problems that mean that they may not have a long life. But just as we would um, come alongside and care for a family member, say a, a grandparent who was diagnosed with a terminal cancer, our solution is never to end that person's life that moment. Our solution is to come alongside them, to provide them love, to provide them um, comfort if they're uncomfortable. And we can do the same thing for these children who have limited lives. Um, perinatal palliative care is a growing um, opportunity to meet with a family before birth, to discuss what sort of interventions they would like, to bring a chaplain alongside, to bring other family members alongside. And for the time that that child has to live on this earth, we can love them, we can, we can just, um, show them that we care. This is a much more life-affirming way to care for human beings than intentionally ending their life because they are less than perfect. That's very profound. So we have a dismal maternal mortality rate in this country, and I think that's something that you're looking into. Would more abortion do anything to improve that situation? Well, I no, of course not. And I'll tell you several things. Um, one is that the United States has some of the highest abortion rates in the in the developed world. We have the worst maternal mortality. Unfortunately, there's a subgroup of women within our country, black women, who have three times the maternal mortality rate of white women. They also consistently have abortion rates three to four times that of white women. Abortion is not protecting women from maternal mortality. And for many reasons, I would argue that it is worsening the risk. Maternal mortality is very complicated. Obviously, we don't have time to get into the details, but 
I do want to say that most people, when they think of a maternal death, they think of a catastrophic event at the time of delivery. But the reality is maternal deaths are any time during pregnancy measured all the way to the uh, to a year from the end of the pregnancy. In 2019, the last year that we have data on, um, our country documented about 750 maternal deaths, only two abortion-related deaths. So that shows you that the CDC does not try hard to detect um, deaths after abortion, particularly if they were um, related to a mental health cause, which many of them are. I think we can intuitively recognize if a woman has a coerced abortion and commits a suicide on the perhaps the due date of the child that she wanted to bear, clearly that's related to the abortion, but we have no system in place to detect deaths like that. European countries with better quality data tell us that a woman is six times as likely to commit suicide in the year following an abortion than if she had carried her child to term. Additionally, they tell us women are two to four times as likely to die of any reason. So the only reason that abortion advocates in the CDC say that abortion is safer than childbirth is they really do not detect hardly any of the deaths that are related to abortion. We do a lot of late abortions in this country. 10% are after the first trimester. 1% are after the baby can survive separated from his mother. And most of those are elective abortions as well. They're very dangerous. These dismemberment abortions, particularly if they're performed by a poorly trained or poorly qualified abortionist, can and do kill women. Um, so there's a, there's a lot to dive into there. Um, but, um, you know, let's just say that um, abortion is leading um, our country to have more single mothers. Um, fewer fathers are engaged when women do decide to carry a, a pregnancy to term. And we know that single motherhood is associated with poverty, which is associated with increased maternal mortality for many reasons. And so we really, if we're serious about maternal mortality, we need to look into some of those issues and try to impact them rather than simply scare women about pregnancy and tell them that in order to protect their lives, they need to abort their children. Well, Dr. Skonk, is there anything that the average person can do to battle these lies that the abortion industry tell and the media tells every day about abortion and women's health? Well, the American public have been gaslit on the issue of abortion. I think that's clear. Um, not only the media are pro-abortion, but so are many of the mainstream medical organizations. Um, ACOG, my professional organization, um, recently stated that abortion for any reason at any time of pregnancy is necessary medical health care. This is a lie, let me tell you. And it should be noted that 90% of obstetricians do not perform elective abortions. So I think the most important thing that your viewers can do is to educate themselves. Go to the Charlotte Lozier website. We've got quite a bit of deep dives um, on these issues. The American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists is another great place to get information, but we've got to educate ourselves. We've got to educate those around us about the many ways that abortion is hurting women um, in our country and really um, causing um, destruction in the fabric of our society. Well, Dr. Scott, you've given our viewers a lot to think about, and we really appreciate you taking the time to join us. And I hope you'll come back as these cases and the maternal mortality study uh, progress. And thank well, you so thank much you. for thank everything you. you do for life. I appreciate it. It's great to be Good here. Good night, Dr. Scott. Good thank night. you. All is not well in the abortion industry. 
In a long pro-union rant in the radically pro-abortion news outlet called Rewire News, freelance writer Garnett Henderson said abortion sellers and advocates are against allowing their employees to unionize. Planned Parenthood Federation of America announced significant layoffs this summer, and union busting is so common among its affiliates and has been a pattern for so long that it's difficult to believe it's not an institutional policy, no matter how much Planned Parenthood assists that affiliates make their own decisions, Henderson wrote. Advocacy organizations also treat their employees badly, according to Henderson. Allegations of a hostile work environment have long dogged the Guttmacher Institute, one of the most important research organizations in reproductive health, she wrote. And just last week, the abortion justice organization All Above All fired almost its entire non-executive staff weeks after an anonymous employee or employees alleged anti-blackness within the organization. Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger was well known as a racist and a eugenicist, but it took the organization until 2021 to distance itself from her. In an opinion piece in the New York Times, Planned Parenthood CEO Alex McGill-Johnson wrote, we will no longer make excuses or apologize for Margaret Sanger's actions, but we can't simply call her racist, scrub her from our history and move on. We must examine how we have perpetuated her harms over the last century as an organization, an institution, and as individuals. Henderson concluded her screed for Rewire News by saying that abortion workers need unions to have their humanity and dignity recognized. In pro-life, we say it's the babies in the womb who need that recognition. Fallout continues in Indiana over an abortion performed last year in the state for a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio. Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita filed a lawsuit against Indiana University Health, alleging that the health system violated numerous laws by supporting abortionist Caitlin Bernard, accusing it of failing to prevent HIPAA violations and of being deceptive to consumers. But Rokita has troubles of his own. A complaint filed Monday with the Indiana Supreme Court's Disciplinary Commission said he violated professional conduct and confidentiality rules in statements he made about Bernard. The story of the 10-year-old's abortion became national news after Ohio enacted a heartbeat law and the girl's pregnancy was too far advanced for an abortion in her home state. She traveled to Indiana, where Bernard gave the girl chemical abortion pills, then spoke to the press about it. In Rokita's response to the complaint against him, he said confidentiality should not have been required since Bernard spoke publicly first. In May, Bernard was reprimanded by Indiana's Medical Licensing Board and fined $3,000. The rapist, 28-year-old Gerson Fuentes, was sentenced in July to life in prison. Too impatient to wait for a court ruling on the constitutionality of a law written in 1849 to protect babies from abortion in Wisconsin, the nation's number one abortion seller has resumed killing babies in Madison and Milwaukee. Chemical and surgical abortions resumed Monday. Planned Parenthood, again aborting babies up to 22 weeks, is reportedly confident that a case in Wisconsin Supreme Court will be decided in their favor. Planned Parenthood in Wisconsin killed 4,000 pre-born children in the first six months of 2022. Charges have been dismissed in the case of a Michigan abortionist who ran down a pro-life activist outside a Saginaw killing center. Here's a report from an ABC affiliate in Flint, Michigan. In the felonious assault case of a Saginaw Township doctor accused of running over an abortion opponent, has been dismissed. The preliminary hearing for Theodore Rumel ended with Judge Ileon Fitchner dismissing the case against the doctor. She heard testimony from Mark Zimmerman, the man who says Rumel drove over him in the driveway of a Saginaw Township clinic. Zimmerman's leg was broken in the June 23rd incident. Surveillance video showed Zimmerman standing in front of Rumel's car as the doctor was driving into the clinic. Matt Norwood, the doctor's attorney, claims Zimmerman was actually breaking the law by blocking access to the clinic. Again, the judge dismissed that case. We will have more from the courtroom and reaction to the ruling today on First at Four.
Also in Michigan, trouble is afoot in Governor Gretchen Whitmer's plan to make her state as dangerous for the unborn as California and New York. State Representative Karen Witsit has said she will not support legislation that allows for Medicaid funding of abortion. She opposes repealing the state's 24-hour waiting period, and she wants current regulations treating some abortion facilities as surgical outpatient clinics to remain in place. I will not vote and fund Medicaid abortions. That's not going to happen, Whitsit said. Of the state's 24-hour waiting period, she said, I do not think it is too much to ask when someone's terminating a life. A 24-hour pause to be able to say for sure this is the decision you want to make. 24 hours is not too much. Without Whitsitt's votes, Whitmer's abortion goals will fail. In a small victory for pro-lifers in Ohio, the state Supreme Court on Tuesday ruled that the term unborn child can remain on the ballot language for a November vote on whether or not a right to abortion is contained in the state's constitution. Pro-aborts wanted the word fetus instead, hoping voters might not notice they were deciding the fate of human beings in the womb. After insisting for months that Republican Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville was solely responsible for the delay in approving senior military promotions, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer finally folded Wednesday and began to set up votes on three military officers. While Schumer is trying to take credit for breaking the logjam, it was actually Tuberville who set the plan in motion. The Senate confirmed Air Force General Charles Q. Brown Jr. as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff with an 83 to 11 vote. Tuberville began blocking the promotions in March over a Pentagon policy that provides paid time off and travel expenses for military members to have abortions. According to the New York Times, Schumer was reluctant to force votes on individual nominees because he did not want to be seen as giving in to Senator Tuberville. And finally, an extreme abortion advocacy group that has changed its name several times in the last 50 years has done it again. NARAL Pro-Choice America is now Reproductive Freedom for All. President Minnie Timuraju said the new name is, quote, a demand, a call to action, and a vision of the future we're fighting for. The organization was founded in 1969 as the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws and became the National Abortion Rights Action League after the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. It has been NARAL Pro-Choice America since 2003. And that's Abortion in the News. A flurry of reaction took place in the pro-life movement about comments that President Trump made in a Meet the Press interview on Sunday. President Trump's opinion is that the nation is not ready yet for a heartbeat bill, but that the movement can hammer out the proper number of weeks for a federal law that protects the unborn. The president expressed his commitment to hammer out such a limit. Priest for Life National Director Frank Pavone pointed out that pro-life leaders themselves are divided on what specific legislation should be proposed on a national level. He said that President Trump's remarks do not indicate any change in his pro-life commitment, but rather an awareness that in the 2024 election, pro-life candidates have to win over voters in all 50 states, not just the pro-life ones. You can see more of our national director's analysis of these remarks on endabortion.tv. Trump is expected to skip the September 27th Republican debate in California, the second primary debate and the second one he will miss. Instead, he will visit Detroit to deliver a speech to disgruntled union auto workers, a key voting bloc in Michigan and a pivotal battleground state. Courting evangelical voters in early nominating states, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is looking to become politically reborn, turning his struggling Republican presidential bid fully towards faith-based conservatives. 
DeSantis has unveiled, unveiled endorsements from dozens of pastors and religious activists and spent last weekend campaigning at several Iowa conservative events, including the state's major faith and family freed, faith and freedom coalition's fall banquet. Leaning into his record in Florida, DeSantis touted having signed a ban on most abortions after six weeks, a measure whose fate will soon decide by the state's Supreme Court, where five of the seven justices are appointees of the governor. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro announced Tuesday that his state has now become the latest to enact automatic voter registration, saying that no matter who you choose to vote for or what your views are, I hope you'll make your voice heard. The Democrat, in a video posted on X on National Voter Registration Day, said the move is a key step in making our elections more secure and will add important levels of verification to the voter registration process. Shapiro said, from now on, when you get or renew your driver's license or an ID card at the DMV, you'll be registered to vote unless you choose not to. And by expanding voter registration at our DMVs, we'll save taxpayers time and money, reduce the number of costly paper registrations, and streamline voter registration for Pennsylvanians, he added. Pennsylvania is now the 24th state in the U.S., state in the U.S., along with the District of Columbia, to enact automo automatic voter registration, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Republican Carol, Carolyn Carluccio and Democrat Daniel McCaffrey are running for a seat on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. The winner of the November 7th general election will succeed Justice Max Baer, Democrat, who died nearly a year ago. As a result of Baer's death, the court went from a 5-2 Democratic majority to a 4-2 Democratic one. That means partisan control of the court will not change after the election. If Carluccio wins, the court will have a 4-3 Democratic advantage. If McCaffrey wins, the court's balance will change from a 4-2 Democratic majority to a 5-2 Democratic one. The deadline for voter registration in Pennsylvania is October 23rd. Absentee mail-in ballot request deadline is October 31st. Deadline to return absentee mail-in ballots is November 7th. Floridians Protecting Freedom, a coalition aiming to put abortion access on next year's ballot, reached the signature threshold needed to trigger a state Supreme Court review of the ballot question's language. However, the group needs more than 800,000 signatures by February to get it in front of voters in 2024. Even if the court approves the ballot language and Floridians Protected Freedom hits the signature threshold, the effort would still need support from 60% of voters to succeed. DeSantis warned to please encourage everyone you know in Florida not to sign the petitions and be very careful when approached to sign any petitions. These people are very savvy, savvy and distort what the petition is really for. Pro-abortion advocates are trying to put the question of abortion access on the 2024 ballot in the battleground state of Nevada. On Thursday, a coalition including Planned Parenthood, NARAL Pro-Choice Nevada, and the American Civil Liberties Union of Nevada filed a petition with the Secretary of State's office to secure a ballot question about enshrining abortion protections in the state constitution. A copy of the proposed amendment was first shared with NBC News. The groups need to collect 103,000 signatures from registered voters by June 26th 
to get their proposal on the November 2024 ballot. If it passes with a simple majority, it will appear again on the 2026 ballot because a second passage is required to change the Constitution. To stay in the loop on everything about the November elections and to sign up for our election trainings, go to ProLifeVolunteer.com. And that's political news in a nutshell. 40 Days for Life is an internationally coordinated 40-day campaign that aims to end abortion locally through prayer and fasting, community outreach, and peaceful all-day vigils in front of abortion businesses. Its fall campaign kicks off September 27th. Since the first coordinated 40 Days for Life campaign took place in 2007, organizers have reached more than 1,000 cities in 63 countries. We've invited the CEO of 40 Days for Life, Sean Carney, to join us tonight and tell us about this amazing campaign that's saving babies around the world. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. So, Sean, tell us how 40 Days for Life got started. Well, I think um, it wasn't a, a, it was kind of an unorthodox beginning. It started really out of frustration. We were, uh, I was a college student at the time at Texas A&M. I, I volunteered for a local organization called the Coalition for Life. I was a sidewalk counselor and I would go out and pray. And uh, my wife and I started working at the local Coalition for Life led by our, our friend, David B. Wright. And um, we just saw our abortion numbers going up. And so we spent an hour in prayer uh, asking God what we could do. We weren't getting more volunteers. People were burned out. They had built this huge Planned Parenthood and College Station. And we just thought, you know, everybody just thought this is the way it is. And if abortion can survive here, it can survive anywhere. College Station is very conservative. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, you know, former military school. They have one of the largest ROCT programs, uh, ROTC programs in the country. It's it's the number one recruitment for the FBI and the CIA. It's very patriotic. It's pro-military. And we're like, this abortion clinic is, is going gangbusters. And so we just spent an hour in prayer and 40 days came out of that. And we thought, what if we did a nonstop 24-hour peaceful vigil for 40 straight days outside of that local abortion facility? And, and we did that and it dropped local abortion numbers by 28%. Um, we had the Knights of Columbus take the night shift um, from 11 o'clock at night to 7 o'clock in the morning. And when it was over, we didn't expect anybody else would want to do it. But over the over the next two years, people really asked us how they could do it. I helped Green Bay, Wisconsin do a 40 Days for Life campaign. We had a group in Seattle do a 40 Days for Life campaign. So in the fall of 2007, we launched it as a national coordinated effort and by the way, Priest for Life was, was the first, uh, Father Pavone was the first person to endorse it and uh, back in 2007. And that went a very, very long way because it was in many ways an experiment and a risk. And, and praise God, it has it is grown uh, to, to, to now be in 1,600 cities. Wow. So I saw on the 40 Days for Life website the amazing statistics of what the campaign has achieved over the years. Will you please share those numbers with our viewers? Yeah, you know, I mentioned that the 1600 cities were in 64 uh, different countries uh, around the world. Um, we continue to add countries as they look to the U.S. because, as you all know, we have a robust pro-life movement here in the United States, despite spreading abortion to many of these countries. Um, we've had 23,525 babies. Uh, saved from, from abortion, 251 
abortion workers who have had a change of heart and left their job, including uh, Abby Johnson, who many people are familiar with because of, of her book, Unplanned, and her movie, Unplanned, uh, tells the story of when she walked right into my office in 2009. She was our local Planned Parenthood uh, director. She had a conversion. Um, and, and then, of course, um, you know, we've had 145 abortion facilities close their doors and go out of business. And, and out of those 145, those are about 70 cities that are abortion free now. Uh, those are 70 cities where they, they didn't get another abortion facility. They didn't have another abortion facility in town. They just had an abortion facility. And then 40 Days for Life came and praise God, um, they're now abortion free. And that includes College Station now which is um, abortion-free, and, and that abortion facility is now the headquarters of 40 Days for Life uh, in College Station. Well, that's poetic justice. So yeah. tell us exactly what does the campaign do? What, is it, what, is, what does it look like, the 40 days? It's very simple. I mean, we, we have local leaders. We train them. We train them on um, legal things. We train them on how to deal with the media. Um, and then they recruit. We train them how to recruit uh, people from the churches, how not to dump this on pastors. That's really something that we emphasize. And so people sign up, they can sign up online, they can sign up directly with their local leader, but online is the easiest at 40daysforlife.com and they sign up for an hour and they go out to pray. And each location has a uh, option of doing 12 hours or 24 hours. Um, you know, throughout the, throughout the middle of the night. And that's usually based on safety, um, and capability. But, um, you know, when you go out, it's very uneventful. People think that it's, it's violent, which it's not. People think that it's dangerous, which it's not. Uh, you go out and you enter into a prayer vigil outside of your local abortion facility. And that is just one of the reasons I think 40 Days for Life, we've had a million people participate and it's because it's simple. It's because it, it doesn't require a, a PhD it does require a little bit of courage and probably some fortitude over time, but it is so, it's for your benefit. It truly is um, putting the contemplative before the active, which is Catholics is so important as we've seen time and time again. And people, the prayer is what sustains you. We encourage people to do some kind of fast. And we've had people do all sorts of fast. We've got more fasting reports maybe than any other organization besides the Catholic Church because people have sent in some some wild things of how they've sacrificed. But it's um, it's wonderful to see and it's why it's approachable. It's why it's approachable for the workers and certainly for the women going in having abortions. But it's also approachable for the women who come out after the abortion. Uh, they're the most open to us if they go through the abortion, honestly, because they know, number one, their fear of basically knowing in their mind we were judging them, that's gone because now we know they've had an abortion and we're still offering help. And so that's gone. And they're also more broken and vulnerable and just maybe more open to help. So one of the beautiful things that, that isn't reported enough on, I think, is is how many women we have actually helped get into post-abortive healing um, because we're the first person they encounter minutes, you know, after their abortion. Hmm. Well, has it been harder for you to get volunteers and participants, uh, participants, excuse me, since the overturning of Roe? No, it's been the opposite. It's been easier. Um, it's been easier 
which I was surprised. I thought 40 Days for Life would shrink. Our organization expected that we would lose locations post row for, for the best reason that we have, which is the abortion facility closes. You know, um, we're trying to put ourselves out of business. And so that happened post row. We did see abortion facilities close, but we added so many U.S. cities. We actually grew. We grew in locations and we grew in volunteers, um, which which I was surprised. And I think that that is a direct result of so many people who uh, for decades have just been on the fence about abortion. And, and there's something about thinking something could happen and then seeing the headline on your television that Roe v. Wade was overturned. And how many people told us, I just never thought I'd live to see the day that Roe v. Wade was overturned. And I think it made a lot of people, it gave them hope. We're winning now. We're winning on every level of this battle. Um, it's very hard. We have extreme new challenges and they are very real. I think our politicians have a desperate messaging problem that we see by the day, but we are winning. We are always winning in the grassroots and now we are winning at the Supreme Court. And, and I think we're winning at the state level as well as we now have, have you know, 23 states that are either abortion free or getting very close to being abortion free. And so I think that this is a winner and people like to join a, a winner. It's also the only front in the culture war, I believe, that we're definitively winning. And so despite 50 years of, of abortion in America. So we grew. We grew post-Roe. We continue to grow. And we grow in, in volunteers and in locations, which is our, our number one priority because that leads to save babies and closed abortion clinics. Okay. All right, so the official kickoff is September 27th and the campaign runs through November 5th. Any particular reasons those dates were chosen? <laughs> we get, we've gotten this question from, from the beginning. At first, people said we did 40 Days for Life in the fall because of elections, but that's not true. The first campaign was 2007, which there was no election that year. Um, it is strictly due to weather. That is our profound <laughs> reason. And so we're waiting for it to get a little cooler in the South and we don't want it to be too cold up north. So that is why the 40 Days for Life campaign, it always starts the last Wednesday of September. There is no, um, there's no exciting answer to that question. It's, it's weather. And every 40 Days for Life leader is a local weather expert. I'm also <laughs> a weather expert and a weather guru because we have people standing outside across our country. Um, but in Lent, it, it does coordinate with Lent. It does coordinate with Lent and it goes from Ash Wednesday to Palm Sunday. All right, those are great reasons, thank you. So how can our viewers get involved and uh, what can we do to get the word out? Absolutely, well go to 40daysforlife.com and, and find your location. Uh, chances are you have a location close to you. There are still some abortion facilities lingering in many of these, um, in many of these uh, very strong pro-life states. So you probably still have a campaign somewhere in your state and we have grown significantly in California. That's our that's been our biggest state this whole time has been California, California, New Jersey, New York, Illinois. The more pro-abortion the area, uh, the more of a presence we have. So go to 40daysforlife.com. You can also get our podcast for free. We do a weekly podcast where we cover current events and things going on in the pro-life movement. And that is on video on YouTube. And it's also an audio podcast on, on anywhere you can find podcasts. Well, thank you so much, Sean, for joining us tonight and for all you and your team do to continue saving lives. Okay, thank you. I'll keep up the great work. <laughs> thank Thanks. you, Sean. Good night. Good night. 
Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priest for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. If you like our show, please support us by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priest for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating God's people to end abortion. For all your pro-life news updates during the week, please follow us on Twitter at Pro-Life News Show. I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.